Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we uh, are talking about the character of Jesus in the context of the times. What was going on at the times? We're in session four, and we started talking about the Talmudin, which are the disciples of Yeshua. And Jesus referred to his apostles as disciples. And disciples is simply a word that means students. They were students studying something. They were studying how to be ministers of his holy church. His church, of course, is from the Greek word ekklesia, translated from the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out. And, of course, we know in the Old Testament, the Levites were called out of the Walden camp that people started creating with the golden calf. And the golden calf was a reserve bank. And this was a common thing done in city-states so that they could deposit the wealth of the people into one purse. And then they would have somebody control that purse and redistribute to the needy. And it also, as a secondary effect, created a loyalty in the people. They could not leave the community. And this was always the big danger. You're 10,000 people traveling across the desert, and you have to spread out a little bit because you have to feed your flocks, and the grass doesn't grow thick in the desert. And so they're kind of spread out. So what happens if a bunch of Amalekites or Malachites attack a group way over in the distance? Well, they can blow their shofar, but what's going to get the people to come and defend those people on the outskirts? Well, they're going to have to do that if they want those people on the outskirts to come and defend them. On the other end, of this large community moving through the deserts of the Sinai. They're going to have to create some sort of loyalty so that people will come. There will be a hue and cry. That's what the shofar was for. they blow that shofar and people would be coming. And that hue and cry of society, there was somebody who yelled, thieves, robbers, Malachites, Amaleks, whatever. And people would come to their assistance, and they themselves would have to come to the assistance of other people. And that would create a bond of mutual love and respect. And, you know, you guys showed up in the nick of time. I'll never forget this. And that's the way they operated. But the golden calf system, where you put all your wealth in this golden calf, and it's a particular shape and size so that you know how much gold is there, and you can add more gold by simply pounding out the gold into gold leaf, and then you you put that leaf on there and you pound it on, and everybody sees the deposits being made, and you can keep track of it. You don't you can't carry around a vault. This is your vault, and all the city states, not all the city states, but all the ones that 
used this method had these golden statues. They also would have, like at Ephesus, they would have a vault where they kept extra coin because they had to spend funds in order to, you know, maintain the purposes of the temple, which in the case of Ephesus was a giant uh, insurance underwriter. It was uh, had the most secure vault in all the Mediterranean, and the Christians were accused of robbing it. Who was going to rob the golden calf? Well, they would have to conquer all the people because everybody would come from all around to defend the golden calf. And that's where the real wealth is. If you just rob these uh, Israelites that are way out there on the outskirts, they don't have any gold on them. You're not going to get anything of value that you can take away. Oh, you can take away a few sheep and and maybe some goats and stuff, but they don't have any gold and silver on them. You're not going to have... You know, what are you going to take their clothes and and run off? You're going to risk your life to steal their clothes? Well, their gold and silver was back at that golden calf, so you'd have to make war on the whole bunch of them because all their wealth was over there. But they said, no, that's that's not what Moses wanted. He wanted you to be coming to the aid of anybody that was attacked. So you could attack, attack an Israelite, raid their camp, and if you could find their purse, you could steal their purse, and you could take off. But if they had blown that shafar when you attacked, you would hear way off in the distance another shafar blowing, and another one, and another one, and another one. And soon, there'd be a whole army full of these Israelites with sharp swords coming, running to the aid of their brother. And they'd hunt you down. And you learned real quick, you know, we can rob other Amalekites and we can rob Malachites, but you don't rob an Israelite because the whole nation will come running after you. And they were bound together by that honor and respect and faith and hope and charity. But with the golden calf, you lose all that. People aren't going to come running out to the aid of the guys on the outskirts or the guys who were robbed. And, you know, what's it to us? We got all the gold back here in town. And it divides the people. Anytime you have a system like that, it will divide the people. Now, what what was the purpose of just putting it all there in the golden cap? Well, that was your social security in your vault. That was going to protect you and protect your society and bind your society get together with this one purse which Proverbs warns you about. But that's what the golden calf was. It wasn't because of, as Cecil B. DeMille kind of makes it out, that people were dancing around and bowing down to a golden idol. They were they were centralizing their power. And how is that? Well, you know, gold and silver and, and these commodities have value. That value is that gives you the power to obtain goods and services from other people. Money is power. So when you centralize your money, you centralize power. And of course, later on in the history of Israel, they centralized more power in a king. Big mistake. It was a rejection of God. Just like the golden calf was a rejection of God. Anytime you elect a leader to exercise authority one over the other, to fight your battles for you, to protect you, to guarantee your welfare, individual welfare, and give him power so that he can do that. You're rejecting God. You were rejecting God back then. And you were rejecting God if you do it today. 
doesn't change. God didn't change. And evidently, a lot of you haven't changed either. But John the Baptist came along and said, change. Change your ways. Change the direction you're going. And Jesus came along and said the same thing. He was preaching the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and told us to do the same. But most of the churches just say, just think a thought and you're saved. Kind of crazy, but... And, of course, what's happened is they have their golden calf locked away behind vault doors and they don't even know where the calf is at and they don't know what it looks like. They don't know if anybody's robbed it. But they're so stupid that they don't even do anything about it. And they're so dumbed down beasts of burden that they don't even know what they could do about it. Well, the same thing as John was saying. Repent. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You're not going to get anything back. There's nothing there to get back. You've gone the wrong way. Electing a different Saul is going from Saul to Rehoboam. And Rehoboam says, Solomon was his father, and he says, My father whipped you with whips. Doesn't sound real wise or good, but... I will whip you with scorpions. You see, the the government they created was there to punish them, to punish the wicked, which was the people who created it. The same principle applies today. So anyway, going back to Yeshua and his 12 Talmud, we were talking about some of the stuff that was going on in the Dead Sea Scrolls at that time to give you a picture of the environment at the time of Jesus Christ. We talked a little bit about Corbin. We talked a little bit about the environment of all the different authors that were writing around that period of time, at least in a biblical sense, in the Apocrypha. And some of the Apocrypha may not be true, but that's part of the environment in which the gospel in the early church was functioning. And it gives you glimpses. And then we talked about a lot of new authors, Croissant and and Borg and, and these people who are writing about Christ and giving you a new picture of Christ and every one of them missed this so simple concept of social welfare systems based on faith, hope and charity and social welfare systems based on legal requirements through a Sanhedrin that was going to force the collection of the funds and put them in big depositories and then distribute them according to the regulations of the scribes and Pharisees. In Luke 22:38, we saw, And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. And we showed how Essenes of the time were always armed, how they didn't take oaths, which James and Jesus both are emphatic about, not taking oaths, not binding yourself, and how they traveled from place to place, not taking things with them often, because they knew there was another house that would take them in and they have rules and disciplines that we see written in the Dead Sea Scrolls about how there was always going to be in every town somebody designated to bring in the traveler, provide them with food and clothing if necessary, all supported by free will offerings through the Essene community who took care of all their social welfare and were the most common group not to sign up with Herod and his system of social welfare through baptism. Because we know 
through these scrolls and other subsequent writings of the time that Herod had set up a system of social welfare where you signed up with the scribes and you became registered. And that we also talked about the the words idiotus and uh, and the words that are translated commonly that somehow or other Peter was unlearned. But he wasn't unlearned. He wasn't ignorant. He was unregistered. And they didn't have any authority over him. He had been cast out. They couldn't give him direction as to what to say and what couldn't say. He was a part of the church that was not gagged by signing up with another group. He was not 501c3 by application. He was considered the church because he was called out by Christ. He was a part of his discipleship and had fulfilled the requirements. And the people said, we're going to give to Peter. We're going to give to John. We're going to give to the apostles through a network of giving. And they established that network by the thousands on Pentecost. And it was much like the system used by the Essenes because the Essenes were just using the system that was used by ancient Israel. And we see a lot of Messianic Jews, we'll call them, you know, where there are Messianic Christians who are following Jewish traditions, but they're following often Jewish traditions as interpreted by the Pharisees who we know got it wrong. We're all mixed up. We're confused. We're not following the ways of Moses. And again, what was the ways of Moses? You were to bind yourself together by loving one another. Not just in isolated little congregations, but in congregations of congregations of congregations. So that when there was a hue and cry, when there was a need amongst you, you could all come to each other's aid. Now we talked about Amalek's and Malachites being that need, but what happened if you fall off a ladder and break your back? And you can't work anymore. And you got six kids. And your wife and your children are going to be starving because you can't work. Where are you going to go? Are you going to go to your Messianic Jew friends that are in congregation? Are they going to support you and your family? No. You're going to do exactly what Jesus Christ said not to do. You're going to go to men who exercise authority one over the other, calling themselves benefactors, but those men are only going to give you what they take away from your neighbor by force. They are no different than Herod and Herod's religion. And you're going to pray to them for your benefits because you don't know what religion is. Oh, you, you grow your beard out and you wear your prayer cloth, but you don't know what religion is. You don't have the courage and fortitude to stay together and be the hue and cry for each other in society when there's a need. But you think you're religious. You don't, you don't do what the early church was doing. You don't do what early Israel was doing. But you got your prayer cloth and you got your beard and you got your locks and you got all your Hebrew words. You don't say disciple, you say Talmudim. You don't say Jesus, you say Yeshua. And you don't say God, you take the O out and put a little dash there. But you don't, you're not a worker of righteousness. You're not providing pure religion through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. 
So you don't have anything at all really to do with Jesus or Moses because you've been deceived. And I'm telling you, make straight the way of the Lord. Turn around. So if we look in Luke 22:24, we see, And there was also strife amongst them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? Well, that sounds kind of petty, doesn't it? If you're reading the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see, And there was also strife amongst them about who among them was the greatest. So what was that all about? Were they really bickering? What does this strife mean? That they were actually trying to find out who was the greatest amongst them. Well, that sounds arrogant and vain, but there's actually a reason for that. They, as Talmudim, which were usually in groups of twelve, which was very interesting, and how did they form those groups of twelve, and who were the twelve, and who were the three, because they often had this other group that was off to the side that was part of the twelve, but they were clearly a group together, as Jesus, we see Jesus doing with Simon and others that he set aside, such as the Transfiguration, where they came up with him, only three came up with him, and he often addressed those three. But this is exactly what the Essenes were doing, or at least some groups of the Essenes, they weren't all the same, but there was this pattern that you were seeing there that was distinctively different from the Pharisees, and also clearly distinct and different from the Sadducees. Sadducees hardly even believed in God. They were rich and they were powerful and they really didn't have a lot to do with the teachings of the Torah the way, certainly the way the Pharisees had their understanding. But the Essenes were far different. The Essenes had nothing to do with animal sacrifice except for things like the Passover. They weren't out there killing animals and burning them up. They thought that was all a fiction and a fraud. And that's interesting because you go and talk to most of these Messianic Jews, they'll think, oh yeah, they were they were killing animals on piles of stones and burning them up. But the Essenes who read Hebrew and studied Hebrew and were the most loved group, although it was not homogeneous, they weren't all the same, but was they were clearly one of the most popular religious groups in Judea and all around the Roman Empire. And they didn't believe that that was a correct translation of the Bible. And if you read Thy Kingdom Comes in chapter 2, you'll get a glimpse of why they didn't believe that. Reading the same exact Hebrew that the Pharisees were reading. They came to a different conclusion. But, but what was this debate as to who is greatest amongst them? If you read in the Manual of Discipline that was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you will see these words. This is the rule for the session of the general membership, each man being in his proper place. The priest shall sit in the first row, the elders in the second and the rest of the people, each in his proper place, so that each man may state his opinion to the society of Yehad. None should interrupt the words of his comrade. Speaking before his brother finishes, 
what he mm-hmm. has to say. Neither should anyone speak before another of higher rank. Now, one of the things about the Essenes, and we talked about it in previous shows, is this egalitarian approach, this this equal approach of men and women and and different people uh, of rank in society, that you were all equal in the eyes of God. And they were very emphatic about that. And they were one of the few groups that you would actually see and a seen man carrying water jugs back to the house or back to the uh, domicile wherever they live. Because normally that was a job reserved for women only. But Essenes would take on jobs that even women would do and vice versa. They they weren't unisex by any way or any means whatsoever, but there was no job too low. As a matter of fact, that's how they determine their rank. And if you want to go look that up in the Manual of Discipline, it's it's the first QS, Quamran script, chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. So you see that they were talking about rank, but Jesus talks about rank. Who is to be greatest amongst you? Who is to be higher? Who is to be lower? And he tells you how to determine that. And that's not the way the modern church does it. Not really. As a matter of fact, they're very big on exercising authority one over the other. Now, they usually determine where their rank was about once a year, and they usually did that at Pentecost. And you can read on in uh, chapter 2 and verses 19 and 22 of the same book. They shall do as follows annually. The priests shall pass in review first, ranked according to their spiritual excellence. Now, spiritual excellence, what do they mean by that? Well, you have to go back to the original language and look at what... This is, these are translations, And if you go back there, you will find out this spiritual excellence has to do with their position of service. Anyway, it goes on one after another. Then the Levites shall follow the third, all the people by rank, one after another, and their thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Thus shall each Israelite know his proper standing in the Ahad, of God. So they why are they looking for standing? Because it's a network and they have to be able to keep track of one another. And it's just like if you have soldiers and you say, Okay, everybody line up, you know, fall in and everybody knows where they're supposed to be and they can look this platoon, this platoon, this platoon, this platoon, they know where they all are. They did it voluntarily. And they did it for a purpose and we'll explore that purpose when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about these uh, rank in the Essenes, and they talk about priests and Levites and uh, the people in general, the elders of each family, and how they gather together in the thousands and the hundreds and the fifties and the tens, just like Israel. And if you studied the early church in what we know today as Germany and in France, which was Gaul back then, and even as far away as Ireland, 
in England you'll find tithings, ten men, ten men, Dechens. In Italy we find the same thing, where these ten men, and this is where you get the word deacon, which is a combination of the Greek and the word ten, the Greek word for servant and, and, and the word ten. Because it would, if you, if you went amongst the Teutons, before Christ, you found them organizing themselves in the same way. So how do these tens become a twelve? Well, of course, the priests are ministers to ministers to ministers because it's a network of ministry and service. It's not like your churches today where they think service is singing. Their harmony was in the way they took care of one another because they knew then that religion was how you took care of the needy. Now, the the Pharisees had it in their mind to change that. They did take care of the needy, but they did it through this system of Corbin set up by Herod. And now they were all pomp and ceremony, and none of them were attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith that Christ required the early church to attend to and called them the weightier matters. And most churches today, don't the ministers don't even know what the weightier matters are because they don't attend to it. But they still call themselves Christians. They are not the social welfare of the people, as early Israel was, as early church was. And they don't gather together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They want 10,000 people in one stadium and all giving them 10 bucks apiece. Or 100 bucks apiece. Gimme, gimme, gimme. They're not following the, the procedures of the early church. And their rank is one usually of authority. They tell you what you can believe and what you can think. And if you don't like it, you can go find another group that will tell you that you you must think this or that. And you're looking for churches that make you feel good. You're not looking for churches that make you righteous and require righteousness of you. Christ did. They don't. They're not the church established by Christ. Figure it out. Okay, so we're we're seeing that they had this rank just like Jesus talks about rank. The greatest amongst you is based on the service. And they say in the, the great Messianic banquet in the manu- same manual of discipline, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You know, we're actually kind of going backwards here. Or 11 all the way up to 22. It says the procedure of this meeting, and this, this part of the script was a little bit more chewed up, so they had to fill in a few words in here, but they, they're using this word meeting of the men of reputation to the banquet held by a society of Yehad when God has fathered the Messiah or when the Messiah has been revealed amongst them. Now, see, this was written a while before or, or about the time of Christ. Among them, the priest as head of the entire congregation of Israel shall enter first, trailed by all his Brothers, the sons of Aaron, those priests appointed to the banquet of the men, the reputation, they are to sit before him by rank. Then the Messiah of Israel may enter and the head of the thousands of Israel and to sit before them by rank. All the heads of the congregations, the clans, together with their wives, wise and knowledgeable men 
shall sit before them by rank. Again, this isn't a rank of authority, though. This is a rank of service. When they gather and command what they believe is the table here, because the word was damaged, having set out bread and wine, so the command, uh, the communal table is set for eating and the wine poured for drinking. None may reach for the first portion of the bread. Now, this is the instructions written probably before the revelation of who Christ was. Bread or the wine before the priest. For he shall bless the first portion of the bread and the wine, reaching for the bread first. After the Messiah of Israel shall reach for the bread, finally each member of the whole congregation of Yehad shall give a blessing in descending order of rank. This procedure shall govern every meal, and provided at least ten men are gathered together. And again, they're talking gathering ten. So where they come from the twelve? And again, and I've talked about this in previous programs, the way they did it was you had ten men, and they picked a minister. Okay, that minister becomes number eleven. And they, uh, even amongst the ten men, they have somebody they respect the most, kind of a spokesman. But now they're picking a eleventh man to be a minister. And... He is actually stepping outside of the congregation at one point in his office to be the minister of ten. And you may start this with nine or even less. Start this process of picking a minister. And that minister must gather together with other ministers like himself. And he picks a minister. And, but now, even amongst the elders of the congregation, they may have a kind of a rank in service. And it may be somewhat unwritten, but they may determine this by where they sit when they sit together. And they choose amongst themselves. It's just like, you know, you're doing tag team football. You're going to pick the captain of your team. He's going to play just as hard as everybody else, but he's the captain of your team. But in this case, we're creating a national network. So this is where you first begin to pick somebody who now half his time is spent connecting with other ministers of his same rank or position. And why are you doing this? You can't have hue and cry without it. You can't be a kingdom without it. You're just a congregation. And those ten men who gather together as ministers, they pick a minister. And now they're all linked together and they're working. This is what they're doing as you go up this rank of service is their service is is that they're linking all the other congregations, the tens, the hundreds, and the fifties, the, the thousands, so that they have this combination of this gathering of the people. For what purpose? For the banquet of the Messiah, which is the table of the Messiah. Their table is not a snare. Their table sets you free because their table is set by free will offerings. The offerings that are set on the table of the fathers of the earth, the ones you are used to praying to, 
for your benefits. That's a snare. David says so. Paul says so. Proverbs says so. Peter says so. Because it's a covetous table. It's where you desire your neighbor's bread. And you send men who exercise authority to make sure your neighbor contributes that bread. But the early Christians were rightly dividing it according to the rank of their society determined by who was the best servant of servants of servants of servants of servants. In Matthew twenty-one, twenty-three, twenty-seven, chapter 21, verses 23, 27, the Pharisees challenge Yeshua as to where his mika or authority comes from. Yeshua responds by asking them about John's authority, where he came from. Yeshua was not evading the question. Yeshua was raising this point because Yeshua's earthly authority, what they call Mika in the Hebrew, came from John. You just go read John 1, verses 6, 8, and 15, and 26, 27, and 29, 37. John was passing his authority on to Jesus Christ. This is the one who is to come after me. He's telling you. He's answering the question. He's not evading it. But he's trapping them with his answer. Because he knew they wouldn't answer. He's answering their question with a question that tells you the answer. His authority to be the priest that he was was coming, because he had, he had disciples. This is the job of the priest. The king doesn't have disciples. He's, he's saying, this is what my authority comes from. It's from John. And John had his own baptism separate from that of Herod's. And when you, you got John's baptism, you could still go back and apply to Herod if you had that little white stone that he used to hand out at your baptism to prove your identity, your, your national ID stone, so that you could get benefits at almost any uh, synagogue that was connected to the authority of the temple built by Herod. You could do that at that time. But later on, they made a ruling that if you got the baptism of John, you could not get benefits at the temple. And all the people who got baptized at Pentecost knew that. They knew they were opting out of a system that was iniquitous, that made the Word of God to none effect because it was not based on faith, hope, and charity. All your churches out there, all these men that I mentioned in previous shows that were writing about Jesus, they don't bring this out. They don't point out this basic... They, they understand the political ramifications of many of the things that Jesus said. They understand that he was a political figure as well as a religious figure because John was a high priest of the people who went to John instead of going to Caiaphas, whose father-in-law was Annas, which we talked about in the last show. He was that priest, but he was also a king. And we also showed you, we went down the big long list of who was king and who was high priest. And you'll find these lists throughout uh, historical um, references where the, the same guy who is priest is also governor. And, you know, even though Caiaphas was technically the high priest at that time, we see the Bible talking about going to Annas to be tried. 
And but the actual trial is under Caiaphas, who was the actual high priest. There was like two high priests running around there, and that Annas had five sons, made reference to in several places in the Bible. And mm-hmm. those five sons, those men of renown and power, were warned by Jesus in the biblical text that they would be in trouble. And we showed where that was in the previous shows. And this is going to be at least five in this series of shows. And we're going to talk about how that works and how that uh, works out that these people were playing these roles and Caiaphas was playing a role for a particular purpose and why Caiaphas, who was only the son-in-law of Annas, instead of the other five sons, who all at different times were high priests in Judea. But Jesus was the high priest from the authority of John the Baptist, who authority came from those people who looked to him to be their baptizer and washer and had looked to his father before him. But the others looked to Caiaphas and Herod and Annas for their social welfare. And eventually they had to make the choice between the two. You're not even making the early choice that John was. When you get baptized, you don't really repent. You continue to go to the men who exercise authority one over the other, and you pray to them for the benefits at the expense of your neighbor, and you think you're following Christ. It's crazy. Because your ministers are are beasts. They're more interested in the money that they collect and support themselves with. They don't want to tell you the truth. They want to tickle your ears And you want to go to church and think that service is singing and saying, but not doing. But Jesus said it was the doers, not the sayers. So you should get a hold of other people that want to be doers of the word. And we have a few of them on our network. We have lots of people on the network, but they're not all doers. They're not gathering together with others and taking care of one another. Some are. But a lot of them are just still like they were on the Sermon on the Mountain, just sitting there waiting for somebody else to feed them. Because they don't understand the miracle of the loaves and fishes. The miracle of the loaves and fishes is that people finally learned to share because they saw Jesus take the food that was given him to eat and he gave it away to others. And they started giving too. That's a miracle. And it will take that miracle for you to survive the coming Holocaust in your own society that we saw coming under men like Nero and some of the other uh, emperors that followed as the country became totally bankrupt and their social welfare system, their Corbin, because Rome had a Corbin too, began to collapse. Yeshua Mika traced back through John the Baptist his line his right to be this minister. Now, people say, well, Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levite, but his cousin was older than him. His father was dead, and so he could easily be adopted into the Levites and become a minister. And, of course, that's what John was saying. This is the one who is to come after me. He doesn't even know yet that Jesus is the Messiah because he has to send messengers to him and ask him later. So, anyway, this is part of that environment. If you don't understand what was going on, the politics... You know, they feared for Jesus going to Jerusalem because he might be killed. They feared, and Jesus talks about assassinations. 
And Peter talks about it. And John was out in the desert for a reason, because the men who had offices of power would kill you if you threaten their position of power. They also talk about in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, document 4, about line 20, they are caught in two traps, fornication by taking it says, two wives in their lifetime, although the principle of creation is made and female created them. They are caught in two traps. What is these two traps? You see, this is part, actually, of the message that Jesus gives us. You cannot serve two masters. You see, if you're taking benefits from the one system and taking benefits from the other system based on faith, hope, and charity, so you got... You're taking benefits from the system that is based on force, which Jesus and John the Baptist was, you know, they say, until John the Baptist, everybody was using the system based on force. But John the Baptist was saying, no, share, charity, system based on charity. Christ came saying the same thing. That Corbin, that issue of Corbin and offering being used as an excuse to violate the Torah, because it was not not the Corbin does that, but the Corbin of the Pharisees did that. And your Corbin does that today in the United States, in Canada, in England, in Australia, in South America, is based on forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, your specific welfare, through taxation. Because you signed up and got your social card and your your SIN number and your NIN number and your social security number and that became your badge of servitude there you had to pay in. But you were guaranteed benefits from the treasury of the state. But every single country throughout the world, their treasury is operating in the red, not in the black. And there is no separation of funds. There wasn't back then. And the systems are bankrupt. And so you have to go into debt to get their benefits. So that means you have to curse your children with that debt. And you're worried about the fiscal responsibility of the Congress in your nation or the Parliament in your nation? What about your fiscal responsibility? What about your righteousness? Are you gathering together to become the social welfare in the hue and cry that meets the requirements of God and Jesus Christ? Or are you just playing religion? Playing church? Now, I'm being a little hard on people again. I don't know how I get into this, but we're going to take another completely different turn. We're going to step out of the series and we're going to talk about something else when we get back uh, on the next show. But then we'll eventually have these shows numbered and you can you can download them from the radio station if you want to get the rest of this series but it's very important to understand this in Matthew 17:24 we see that they received tribute came to Peter and said does your master pay tribute he said yes but his master took him aside and prevented him from saying what do you think Simon of whom do the kings of the earth take custom and tribute of their own children? Because they are the fathers of the earth, of their citizenry, because their citizens are subject to the Patronus, 
of those nations. But Israel was to be a different kind of nation where their father was in heaven. So how did they operate? How did they take care of the needs of their government? Through faith, hope, and charity. Free will offerings, free will offerings, free will offerings. That takes a special kind of person, a virtuous person. And if you're not virtuous when you start down that road, you will learn to be virtuous or you will leave that path. And many of you have left that path and are not virtuous. Oh, you're nice people. And I understand that you have not been told the gospel. But now you're being told. So now you're going to immediately gather together. You're going to go find other people like we're trying to find on thelivingnetwork.org and sign up so that you can meet with other people and start forming real congregations of record and rank based on service one to another. Not rank of power, not a hierarchy, but higher service, a higher right to choose, where you you begin to do what early Israel did, the early church did, what Christ said to do, what John the Baptist was trying to get people to do, and what you have been neglecting and not attending to. And Jesus goes on and say, the children of God are free. That is the liberty of Christ. But you guys aren't those children of God. There are a few of you who think you've separated from the systems of the world. But unless you're into a system of Christ, taking care of one another with the union and discipline of the early church, and I'm quoting here of descriptions by historians, union and discipline of the early church who took care of all the social welfare needs of their society because they gathered together and they knew where everybody was. They knew where their brothers in Christ were so that they could take care of them and they could be cast out of a city because Titus's army is surrounding them. They could be cast out of a city because of earthquakes. They could be cast out of the city because of uh, war and famine and they had a place to go because they had a national and international network of people who loved their neighbor as themselves. You don't have that. You are a scattered flock. 40,000 denominations all thinking they're following Jesus and none of them are following Jesus. Why don't you repent and let's follow Jesus together. Until then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church.
Okay, we're going to take a little change of pace here. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, but we're going to approach it from a different point of view entirely. We just finished a series that we called Osho, and Osho is a Hindu word, and somebody took that as their name, along with lots of other names. They like to change their names as if it changed their status or their personality, and it was Rajneesh. Spiran Bhagwan, who uh, started this ashram in Oregon here back in the 1960s or 19, it was 1980s, yeah, 1980, he started this ashram back here and he was trying to immigrate to America and he falsified documents. They ended up having over 400 fake marriages to bring more and more people over here. He was extremely successful, and we talk about how he was successful. He was the epitome of a cult leader. He got people to give up everything they owned to the tune of millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he squandered it frivolously on, uh, on many, 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 many Rolls Royces. I think one count was over 90 Rolls Royces. And he had millions of dollars worth of Rolex watches and and he was total drug addict, taking nitric oxide and other drugs are being flown in by their private jets. And the message of his religion was a kind of a tantric approach to meditation where almost anything goes. And it was very self-indulgent, very self-serving, and very self-destructive. And in the course of talking about a lot of the things that were going on, we started talking about forgiveness. And we recently talked about the uh, five stages of grief. And maybe we'll talk about that in the second half a little bit. That there shouldn't be five stages of grief. There sh- they, those shouldn't exist at all. And there's a reason why you have to go through those stages. And it's because you never really go where you need to go. And we'll talk about where you need to go. But one of the things that we bring up in that process is forgiveness. And that's one thing that clearly Osho had a problem with was forgiveness. He couldn't forgive the oppressive nature of the... He was from a part of India and part of a religious background of the Jains. And their restrictive nature, he did not forgive that. He hated it and despised, you know, any type of imposed morality. And he says, so there should be no... Just do what you feel. Do whatever feels good for you, even though it may include beating other people. And eventually they got around to trying to kill other people and inject them with poisons and and poison them in their food and all kinds of crazy, strange things. And his number one sergeant of arms, so to speak, which was Ma Sheila, she attempted to murder numerous people and plotted with other people to do so, and actually began to do some of those things, although we don't know that they actually ever killed anybody. There were people certainly hospitalized by those attempts. And uh, she was sentenced, along with all this fraud and, and millions of dollars embezzled and and 
lying to the INS. And so she goes off to jail in California and doesn't stay in jail for more than two years. And released because of good behavior and immediately flees the country before Oregon can charge her with more crimes. And yet there are people in jail for eight, nine, ten, twenty, thirty years for not half as much evil as this woman was reaping on people in this robbery and, and murder and mayhem that she was trying to create on other people. Just amazing. But anyway, he eventually flies back to uh, India and takes on the name of Osho. And in the course of talking about this whole story, and you can you can go listen, there's five-hour shows. Uh, eventually, they'll be available on the Living Network. And some of them were on, on this radio station. But in the course of this, I talked about cutters and giving and forgiving. Because forgiving and giving are key elements of seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And I refer to cutters as givers. The whole world is divided into two groups, givers and takers. Those who give life and those who take life. Now, when I say give life, I'm talking about lay down their lives so that they may have life more abundant. And they have life more abundant because they lay down their life in the nature of Jesus Christ, who was risen from the dead because he laid down his life in a particular manner with forgiveness and love. And this allowed life to flow into him and restore him. Now, cutters are givers too. They cut themselves and they feel blood. They, a lot of times they want to actually see a drip of blood form and they cut themselves and they they are giving in that sense they're laying down their life they're cutting they're injuring themselves they call it self-harm and that's what laying you know you could call Jesus self-harm he could have stopped the crucifixion but he didn't he laid down his life is that self-harm No, but because he did it in such a loving way that he would have life more abundant, but he had to go through the trial. And he he worried about it. And we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating blood because he's worried about it, concerned about it. He's going to have to face this tremendous burden. This is, and in this burden, there's tremendous temptation. And the apostles often followed in the same path of laying down their life. And a cutter sort of lays down their life. They they damage themselves. But they don't do it out of love. They do it out of compulsion. And so in one sense they're givers, but in another sense they're not, because they're doing it for the wrong reason. So when I was dividing in the show, and I mentioned cutters, and somebody's pointed it out, that I mentioned that the cutters are givers too, but they... They aren't givers in the sense that I'm talking about that division. They have the appearance of giving. And I'm going to give you several examples of that. We've also, in the past, we talked about people who, you know, stand on street corners and hold up signs saying that they're, uh, you know, they need uh, their vet or their whatever and they're homeless and they need help. And people hand them ten bucks out the window. And they're actually in one sense of the word, givers too. Because they're providing a service to those people who hand money out the window. 
Those people want to feel like they're givers, that they are kind and benevolent. And by allowing them to give five bucks, ten bucks, they get the feeling that they're generous and kind. Oh, I helped out this poor homeless guy on the street. Of course, he's not really homeless a lot of the time. Now, there may be homeless guys on the street, but we've we've done investigating and we saw guys who actually get assigned to this corner by a syndicate of fake homeless people. <laughs> and they they work the corners. But they're providing a service to the people because the people want to feel good. They help them feel good by looking very dejected and everything and then they smile at you when you give them ten bucks. And you feel good and you drive away. I feel good. I gave. Of course, it's it's absolutely not the giving that Christ talks about. It's actually just the reverse. So, even though you could, they will count themselves givers, but that's not the division that I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who lay down their life as Christ did are in one group of givers. And the takers are over there in the other. So the individual just hands 10 bucks out without any discretion or discrimination, doesn't know what that, where that guy's going to sleep, what he's going to eat, what he's going to do the next day. But they feel good because they gave something. That individual is actually over there on the taker side. They're not on the giver side. They give the appearance of godliness, goodness, giving. But they deny the power thereof. They're not actually doing it the way Christ would do it. And so when I was making that division, I was talking really fast. It wasn't the key point. And you can go back and listen to that show. And it was show number two in the Osho series. And that's what I'm talking about. Is that those cutters are actually over there on the taker side. Now, if they want, at any time they want to get over on the giver side where the life is more abundant, we can show them how to do that. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about what a cutter is and how they get to that because the same principle that applies to the cutter also applies to the woman who hands the five bucks out the window to a bum she doesn't even know who really is a bum, but he isn't broke and he isn't homeless. He's there to make you feel good. And he is playing no different role than your pastor in church. That's right, because he's there to make you feel good too. He's not really a giver. He gives of his life so that he can say, I give of my life. He's not really giving like Christ did. Christ would rebuke as many as he loved. But this guy will actually, if you showed him that the church is supposed to be the entire social welfare of the people, and the only way the church can do that is that the people care about their neighbor as much as they care about themselves and give accordingly so that the church can provide all the social welfare. And if they're not doing that, they're not following Christ, they're not Christians, they're not doing what the first century church did. You can explain all that to them. They'll know that. They'll understand that because you can go right through the biblical text and show them. But they can't mention it in their church because people will start to leave. You see, he's not really serving Christ. He's serving himself. He wants those people there because the bigger his congregation and the more they give to him, you know, the more he has. And the more he can feel like, I'm a minister. 
If you get an outfit, you can be a minister too. Go get the diploma and the and the collar and the and the clothes and and you can pretend to be a minister of Christ too. And you can make people feel good and they'll pay you for it. Just like the bum on the corner. You see? But when the Amalek's and the Malachites and all those guys attack, where are these guys going to be? You're going to depend on these guys? Who are you going to call? You're going to call on these guys who are just out self-serving? Are they going to stand up for righteousness? Don't count on it. Now, they might. Because they could repent any time. And it's the same with the cutter. But the cutter is actually often a victim. Now, the, that's the thing is, you can see one person doing this cutting. And you see another person doing the cutting. And you say, well, they're doing the same thing. No, they're not. They might not be doing the same thing. The cuts may be identical. But they may not be doing the same thing. Because the motivation may be different. And they're trapped in a pattern of behavior that they can't seem to escape from. And they may need help escaping from that. But where are they going to escape to? Are they going to escape to a righteous pattern? Or just another more comfortable, less harmful pattern that is more socially acceptable? You know, like start going to church. Because the guys going to church are cutters too. I mean, they're they're cutting out the virtue of Christ out of their lives so that they go to church and somebody will make them feel good about the fact that they're not really doing what Christ said. But they think they're saved because they said the magic words. And the magic words vary from church to church. I mean, some churches it's, uh, oh, my son, your sins are forgiven. And sometimes the magic words are hocustanum corpus manum. And sometimes the words are, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior. Those are all magic words that just suddenly you imagine that you're saved. But see, Jesus said it was the doers, not those who say. So it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you do. And if you're not doing what Christ said, then your faith in Christ is a lie. Because there's no fruit. The fruit of Christ is that you will actually start caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. You will start seeking righteousness in the way you do that. And you will do that by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. And if you're not doing that, then we know that you're not really the faithful. You're just playing church and you're just fooling yourself and you're pretending to be a Christian and you're completely self-deceived. So what about the cutters? And there are a number of doctors that I... I went out and looked up a little bit about this, and one of them says uh, they may have a history of sexual, physical, and verbal abuse. May. They may not have that. They may, they may be very sensitive. They may be perfectionists. They may be overachievers. Why are they overachievers? Why might they be overachievers? And overachievers are often appear to be perfectionists. Because they want to please other people. They want to be accepted by other people. And they feel guilty about that. And there's a pain with that. And the more they try, the more they feel guilty. The more the pain comes. And they need a distraction from the pain. They need something to focus their attention on that will take their attention away from the pain. 
And it's self-destructive, self-harm. And of course, some of the things that Osho was doing in his therapies were self-harm. And it actually got to the point of being harming others. You know, they would... And if you, this same process goes on where, you, you know, you've seen... Almost everybody has seen somewhere where, or heard about somewhere where some wife is being beaten by her husband and abused by her husband and she keeps going back to him. That's a form of cutting. That's self-injury. And yet, it gives you a sense of self-justification. You keep giving to this person who is unappreciative and abusive. You keep accepting and you think, well, I'm forgiving him. If you were really forgiving him, he wouldn't have the power to touch you in, in an injurious sort of way. He couldn't do it. Real love could stop that. But you haven't been taught real love. You could learn it. But you're not going to learn it from me. You have to learn it from Christ. You have to learn it from the tree of life. From the Holy Spirit. But what you're now experiencing isn't it. And that's important to know. And important to be willing to see that. So that you can change. And be changed by the Holy Spirit. If you won't admit that you're not righteous... How are you going to change to become righteous or be changed to become righteous? You have to see, you know, I'm, I'm rebuking, you know, I said I was hard on you in the last show and then now I'm, I'm hard on you in another way. But that's because I love you. I'm rebuking you. Self-injury begins as a defense against what's going on in your families, in your lives, in your mind, in often in your subconscious mind. Because you've got to remember now, 90% of what goes on in your brain, the thinking that goes on in there, goes on in your subconscious. You don't even see it taking place. This is where phobia comes from. This is where schizophrenia comes from. You know, it's a leaky subconscious. <laughs> That's what it is. It's a leaky subconscious. Stuff that goes on in, in the subconscious mind of the schizophrenic is ends up in the conscious mind and he doesn't know how it got there and all of a sudden he's doing these crazy things. It's going on in everybody's mind or almost everybody's mind but they just don't know it. And they'll have phobias, strange phobias. You know, of course, there's the arcanophobia, fear of spiders. But there's all kinds of fear of heights, fear of crowds, fear of water, fear of all kinds of things and these some of these are traceable back to events. You know, you may have saw somebody drown or you almost drowned yourself. And so now you have a fear of water or a fear of heights because your father had a fear of heights. And when he was near the edge of something, he showed fear. And so much of your security in, in life was through your father that when he was afraid of it, then you think and you set up a pattern in your thinking, I should be afraid of it too. And in your subconscious, when you're near those heights, you become afraid every time. But it's just a scar in your psyche put there by your own father's fear. And I'm not saying it's malicious. It's just the process that's going on. And it's passed on to you. And I, I've told the story before where they were studying these monkeys. And they had two female monkeys. And one of them was just doting on their young baby monkey child over about everything. If there was a loud noise, she would she would scream and call the baby monkey to her or run over and grab the baby monkey and pull it to her and everything and protect it. 
And the other monkey, when there was this loud noise and the baby monkey was startled and it ran to its mother, the mother would just pat it on its head and she would just lay there like, yeah, it's just a loud noise, don't worry about it, kind of approach. And guess which one became fidgety and nervous and anxious all the time? It's the one that the mother was doting on it all the time and saying, oh, be careful here and be careful there. Don't be afraid. That it could be dangerous. And, and so she passed on those traits into the subconscious of the chimpanzee because the chimpanzee doesn't think all these things out like you do. He doesn't have that 10% conscious mind like you do. But he has a mind. And he responds to the stimulus of his environment. And his mother is a very much a part of his environment. And so she sets the pattern of the action and reaction. Your mother does that too. Your father does that. Your school does that. Your friends do that. Your ministers, your religions do that. They set up patterns in your subconscious mind and you begin to follow those patterns. So when you're cutting yourself this is the result of something going on in your subconscious based on some sort of frustration and anxiety that is painful for you to see. And you distract yourself with cutting. And you don't need to do that. You need to have some way of seeing what has gotten in you so that you are, and so that you forgive that, that trauma. And then you're released. You don't have to go there anymore. The the scar, the rut in your thinking, that's what, it's like a rut where you're going down the road and there's these ruts in the road. And you get your tires keep falling in those ruts all the time. And you can't get out of them. You just keep, they keep sliding down into those ruts. And you keep returning to those habits. Homosexuality, self-destruction, self-harm. You're not going to be fruitful and multiply. You're not going to have a family. Religion can do this. Religion can be self-destructive. In the case of Osho's religion, these people were ruining their lives. And, and people ended up committing suicide. So, what's really going on? All these, the basic things in your life and the decisions in your life are based on what ruts you have created in your subconscious. And sometimes in your conscious. Now, people try positive thinking. Now, I'm just going to think positively, positively. And that it's a way of kind of trying to fill in the ruts or drive on the high spots. But the subconscious ruts are still there and you will slide into them eventually. Because positive thinking only deals with the high spots of your consciousness. You know, what you see. It's not dealing with the subconscious. As a matter of fact, uh, positive thinking is a way in which to hide from those ruts in your subconscious. It never deals with them. And they remain there, lurking until you're old and then you can't maintain your positive thinking. Now, what it could do for a while with the positive thinking is you could create different ruts that are less self-destructive, but you're still ruts. You're not free of the ruts. Only forgiveness and giving, only forgiveness and giving will free you from those ruts and fill in those ruts so they're not there and so that your heart becomes a super highway where you can clip on down the road without being turned to the left or to the right, without your wheels being taken over by control of others. 
or other things that have already passed through your life. So anyway, the reason they're cutting is often to blunt emotional pain. For with kids with emotional problems, which is, let's see, how many kids do you know that have emotional problems? All of them. (laughs) They have emotional problems to greater or lesser degree. Some of them seem to cope way better than others. But they're still there, and they're they're underneath. And I can see the compulsions in children early on. But they're not always trapped from it. And you, you want to bring them, you know, I gave an example. I had a grandson who a boulder rolled off a mountain and fell on him. <laughs> it just covered him up. A picture was accidentally taken at this hot time, just to bring some of you up to speed. And the camera hit something and it actually clicked a picture and you saw this boulder and just these little tiny feet sticking out of the bottom of the boulder. And his mother would just, you know, panic struck him, but she acted quickly and she actually flipped this boulder off of the child with her feet and gathered him up and we air-lifed him and they really didn't do anything for him. Cleaned up some of his wounds a little bit, scratches and stuff and his head swole up and everything, but he recovered and he got better and you know they kept referring in the hospital that a rock fell on I went back up and looked at this rock and I can't even budge it if I get my arms underneath it and try to move it I can't even budge the thing but she flipped it off of him and it just completely crushed him but he survived and he lived but there were scars from this event emotional traumatic scars And so we had to go back and revisit them with a different attitude. Not one of fear and anxiety and trauma, but an attitude of acceptance and forgiveness and patience. And we'll tell you how we did that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we're talking about cutters. We're talking about blunting emotional pain. We're talking about where that emotional pain hides itself in your subconscious because it's painful. And so you have a tendency to put more and more events of your life in your subconscious. And actually, it it tries to get into your conscious so that you can attend to it. And it's trying to get into your conscious by the pain that it's causing And you're trying to avoid the pain. And so therefore the only way to do that is to push it into your subconscious. And because it keeps wanting to come up, you have to cap it with another pain. And that's what cutters are doing. And and cutters is just one manifestation of the same principle. We do this in lots and lots of different ways that are self-destructive, many of them. Some of them are uh, self-mesmerizing. But uh, alcohol, drugs, um, lots of ways we abuse ourselves, individually, sexually, emotionally, and we do this to cause a pain that we can deal with. I mean, like cigarette, smoking is is a way of pressing down, and you have a physical assistance of the nicotine to press down on your conscious mind. And, and you notice how many people, when they they used to... Uh, I guess there's a lot of people still having trouble with cigarettes. You would think that that would all just fade away, but there's enough people smoking or chewing. And they say, well, it helps me deal with stress. No, 
It helps you not deal with stress. <laughs> That's why you're doing it. Because you don't want to deal with the stress, so you smoke or you chew instead. It's not helping you deal with the stress. It's helping you hide from the stress. It's suppressing the understanding and knowledge and and resources you have available to you to overcome the stress. So the stress is no longer stress. And for the kids with these emotional problems of self-injury, which can be like cutting, is it really any different than the guy who smokes? An effect similar to what they call cocaine or other drugs that release endorphins to create a feel-good feeling. You know, when when you get injured, your body, the chemistry of your body begins to alter and you can set up a pattern where you will actually trigger these endorphins. And I've seen it with somebody who was smoking and whenever they smoked a cigarette, they would pull out the pack in a certain way. They would grab the pack and they would shake it and they would tap it and they would pull up a cigarette. And they'd pull out that cigarette and they'd use their favorite lighter or whatever it was. They would go through a, a whole ritual that they go through every time to smoke. And what some of them did in order to stop smoking was they added to the ritual till it became cumbersome. And they would like wrap rubber bands around one way and then around the other way and then around the other way and then around the other way and until they had this crisscross pattern of rubber bands. And so they wanted a cigarette and they'd be wrapped with a piece of paper. And then they so they had to take off this rubber band and take off that rubber band, take off that rubber band, take off that rubber band, and that one and that one, until they finally got, and they pulled open the paper and they got the cigarette out and they put the cigarette in their mind. And then they'd have to wrap the package all back up again. This rubber band, that rubber band, this rubber band. <laughs> until they got it all wrapped up and they put it away. And then they could take out their lighter and they would light it. And by going through this additional ritual, they were beginning to alter the pattern. They were changing the pattern. And and they would do things like they would take a package of cigarettes and they'd put candy cigarettes in. So they still go through the whole pattern, but they would end up with a candy cigarette afterwards. And usually it's kind of like counting to ten where you wouldn't, you know, you don't get mad, count to ten. And by the time you end up counting to ten, or 10 backwards, then you'd calm down and you didn't get mad, supposedly. These are just changing the ruts that you're using. It's not really dealing with the problem either. It may be less self-destructive than, you know, cutting or taking cocaine or drugs or whatever because you make it more inconvenient to do this. But you're not really dealing with the issue because you're still reaching, trying to create different ruts that your wheels can get stuck in that are not quite so self-destructive. So, but where where is the ruts coming from originally? What are the negative emotions that are being swept under the carpet by this pattern of behavior? And this is one of the things now we're seeing these cutters, you can get YouTubes on them all over the place and they're actually trying to get YouTube to take them off because these people are doing unbelievable things. And of course, some of the tattoo people and the people who you know, put spikes in their head and all these kind of things. It's all a part of this attempt to not deal with emotional pain or pain that would bubble up in the form of emotion. 
And uh, where does it come from? Well, some psychologists blame it on the some of the families send out a message, either by the structure or religion or philosophy of that family that you don't express sadness, you don't you don't show depression, and kids going through puberty are going to have depression. They're going to have emotional difficulties because puberty is hard. You know, for some kids it's a lot harder than other kids because there's an adjustment period. And sometimes the kids that were so happy before puberty are the ones that it hits the hardest because, you know, they have, they have a lot more to let go. And they're not given a lot of guidance in how to let go of that. Their parents aren't setting good examples or their parents are kind of detached or their parents are preoccupied. I mean, the kids are going off to school, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're, they're going into an environment where they don't have the security of their parents and maybe their parents aren't that secure to begin with. And so they, they're looking for other means. And then now with all these people, a lot of times it's in a gothic approach to things. You're seeing this where people are going to this cutter thing because the images of it are being made so readily available and people are seeing it and people are experimenting and trying that out. Well, if you try out things like that, it can be very damaging. And you you see a lot of the cuts are linear cuts. They're straight line cuts, kind of like a railroad track parallel with each other. They'll try to wear long sleeve shirts or they'll wear arm bracelets to, to kind of cover up the scars. Or they'll do it, you know, on their thigh and things like that. It's still an escape. That's what they're doing. And And sometimes they have self-esteem problems. You know, they, they, they're perfectionists, so therefore they, they don't think, not always perfectionists, but sometimes that appears that they're these perfectionists or achievers, and they think, oh, I'm fat, and they're slim as can be. You know, they make Barbie look fat, but they think, oh, I'm, I'm gaining this weight, because they have self-esteem, or maybe they are overweight. But anyway, it's low self-esteem, and they'll carve words in, like stupid, or loser, or failure, or just a big L. Because they, they're putting themselves down and they want to put themselves down about these things so that they don't have to actually deal with the problem. This is what drugs is about. This is what a lot of your churches and religions are doing is they're distracting you from making you think that I'm okay, you're okay, uh, or they're creating pain or a cloud or, or whatever just to distract you from the real problem. And I tell people this all the time is that if you want to heal yourself, feel the pain. Go to the pain. The pain is a message being sent to you that's going to carry with it a solution. And if you're taking chew or you're smoking cigarettes or you're cutting yourself or you're drinking alcohol or you're taking drugs to escape from that pain, you're escaping from the very thing that will allow you to heal. If you will turn and face that thing with patience and with love and realize that the, the pain is not your enemy, it's your friend, you can see that pain and you can see where it comes from, but you have to approach it from this point of view of forgiveness. Somebody's stepped on your toes. Somebody has frightened you. Somebody has traumatized you. Something has traumatized you, frightened you. You know, a spider. Spiders are creepy. And so that's why a lot of people have this uh, fear of spiders. Because their movement, it's this, it's this 
eight-legged movement that and quick movement and creepy movement and so anyway you you develop this fear of them and to some degree when you're little it's good because you don't want kids just reaching out and touching any old recluse or black widow that comes along so you have this kind of built-in fear but when it's magnified then it becomes a rut in your subconscious where just the appearance of the spider and you're completely creeped out even though it's not a spider that can bite you it's not a spider that can harm you but your brain begins to release these stimulus that makes you afraid. And the schizophrenic who is afraid at all these different things, he just has a very leaky subconscious that's constantly leaking into his conscious mind and causing him to do aberrant behavior. You only do it, you know, when you're cutting yourself or when you're taking that cigarette or taking that chew. So that you don't have to deal with stress. Now, why is the stress there to begin with? Stress is caused by something out of place. Mood changes like depression and anxiety, out-of-control behavior, changes in relationships, communications, or even school performance may be signs that the kid is under some sort of stress. And, of course, You'll see this better if your kids aren't in school, but you're home teaching, (laughs) which is where they should be, because the school itself may be causing stress because of people there. Somebody just committed suicide in a nearby town, a, a young kid, because of bullying going on in the local school. Public schools kills. They kill the incentive. They kill the heart. They are prisons that put your brain in prison and cause patterns of behavior that are not good. I think homeschooling is great, but I also think that children should have other homeschoolers around, and the more of you that homeschool and gather together in congregations, the better off it will be. But you're still going to have this problem of stress, because life is stressful. Kids who are unable to manage day-to-day stress of life are vulnerable to things like cutting, drugs, what have you. So they have to start dealing with that stress and by opening up and not hiding from the problem, sharing with their family. And they have to have a family that seems to want to share and hear from them and explain things to them and and feel their pain with them so they're not alone in that and will comfort them and not be afraid themselves. But often when children go out in the world, then they're they're looking for relationships with other people. And those people will start to put those grooves in their heart and in their being, in their psychic, in in their emotions. And they will go back to habits. They will create habits that they shouldn't do. So anytime you see yourself with these habits, whether it be cutting or chewing or smoking or or you have to do this or you have to do that, As a relief from stress, realize that you're escaping from the very thing that can cure you, which is the pain of that stress. Find out what's causing it by seeing it, observing it, detachedly. You know, sit back and see it. Observe the stress. Feel the stress. Go to the pain. Accept the pain that you're feeling, the anxiety, the anger. Anger is another thing. Anger is self-destructing. No different than cutting. 
you know, a lot of the cutters, they don't want to be angry. They're, sometimes they sound impatient at times, especially if they're having to talk about their cutting, because a lot of times they they do this in secret, because they're a little ashamed of what they're doing at the same time they're doing, which is one of the things that, you know, YouTube and, and everybody kind of boasting about showing off the damage they're doing to themselves. And then it gets extreme. Actually, a different problem enters into it is the fact that you're actually almost bragging about it. That you know it's a little crazy, but because so many people on YouTube are doing it, then you now can think that it's not really crazy. The ultimate uh, linchpin is the child has to decide. You know, when I say child, I mean young adult. It hits 14-year-old girls more than probably any other group in society. 14, 15-year-old girls, even up to 16-year-old girls, anywhere else uh, in society. That's the most predominant place where you're going to find cutters. But it's found amongst younger and younger kids all the time, you know, down to 11 or so. And it's certainly associated with puberty and the changes that come along with that. But the problem is this inability or unwillingness to deal with what we call stress, this this trauma in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. And sometimes people need somebody else with them when they have to deal with these. They have to know, just like that monkey runs back to the mother who's calm and at peace and don't worry about it. It's just a loud noise. It's not going to hurt you. In order to, you do that numerous times and then the child eventually adjusts and realizes that it's just a noise and it's, you know, mom thinks it's okay, so I think it's okay. But if your parents get all freaked out when they see the evidence of the stress or inability to deal with the stress, that's not going to help things. And you will hear cutters telling you that, oh, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a parent, but I know that if I found my kids doing what I'm doing, I would just freak out. Well, they know that their parents would just freak out or they believe their parents would just freak out, which is just the same as knowing it. (laughs) I guess it's going to have the same effect. Because of the fact that some messages come to them that their parents would freak out if they knew this. They they believe that. And they usually believe that because there's some evidence that their parents have freaked out in the past. And you know, that freaking out thing, it can be a very subtle thing, especially with very, very calm parents who have this tendency to be very calm and control. I know my own father was that way. And then when he was upset, it we could detect it really easy. You didn't hear ranting and raving. I had an uncle who would rant and rave with anger or sounded like anger and everything, but the kids were all so used to it, they would just smile and say, "Uh, can I take the car? Oh, why do you have to take the car? And they they eventually say, so I'll be back in an hour with the car. (laughs) They were going to do it anyway. And he goes, oh, okay. And it was just his habit. And they were used to that. You know, but my father was very controlled and quiet. So if he was upset, most people wouldn't even be able to know. But we could tell. So the fact that your kids think you're going to freak out doesn't mean you're going to be ranting and raving and screaming. But they know that you're going to be upset and they don't want upset you. What you have to learn, you haven't learned to deal with stress as a parent. And you pass this inability to deal with stress onto your kids now. The way you cover up stress is not as obvious as cutting. You do it with other things. 
But stress is something that has gotten inside you that does not fit and needs to be attended to, observed, seen, realized, understood, so that you have control over it. And you're not willing to do so. And so it bounces around there in your subconscious out of control. And that creates stress. It's like, you know, putting a little marble inside the piston of your car. (laughs) It's going to create lots of noise when you start the engine. It doesn't belong there. It has no place there. You know, a nut, a bolt, whatever. You've got to get it out of there. And you have to attend to it to get it out of there. And these these bolts and things floating around loose in your engine, in your mind, in your subconscious, are things where people have, usually, there are things where people have injured you or you believe that they have been injurious to you or angry with you or, or judgmental of you and you didn't forgive them. So now you've got this loose bolt floating around in your subconscious and it can trigger all kinds of things. And including pain. And you want to escape from that pain. So you look for things like drugs, cutting, religion, overachieving. You see that overachieving doesn't work, so then you try something else like cutting. You see, this is where these connections are. And it's all because you don't want to deal with unforgiveness. That is in you about somebody else or something else. You don't want to deal with the stress. So you do these other things to deal with the stress, but you're not dealing with the stress. You're running from it. So anyway, that's giving and forgiving are the opposite sides of the same coin. I've said this before and I'll say it again. You not only have to forgive those that injure you, you have to forgive those that are nice to you, kind to you, generous to you. Because they can create guilt too. They give you what you don't or feel you don't deserve. They are giving to you for the purposes of creating debt, getting something back. They want your appreciation. They're not just freely giving. They want something in return. Your appreciation, your admiration, your loyalty, whatever. It's not freely given. You have to forgive that or you reject the gift. You see, because they're drawing you in. Because you're going to now act in the moment based on what they did. Whether it was mean or kind, it doesn't make any difference. You have to forgive the kindness done to you. And act in the moment based on what is right and righteous. Because you're dragging the past when you've refused to forgive those who have injured you. You're dragging the past when you've refused to let go of the kindness that is done to you. Because you've turned it into a debt. Because you feel guilty about the fact that they were nice to you. Movie stars deal with this all the time. They receive ridiculous amount of praise and, and admiration and money for lying on stage. <laughs> for, for acting. And they feel guilty about this. And they're often driven to extremes like socialism in order to to alleviate that guilt. You have to forgive that. And you have to learn to deal with the stress. And we can show you how to do that. But you have to be willing to learn it. You have to be, ultimately, you have to decide 
you want to deal with the stress. You want to see the stress. You want to admit it and contend with it. It becomes like an addiction where you, once you start following a certain pattern of self-injury, you keep going back to it and going back to it. And you can't get yourself out of that rut because you've created this rut, just like that car, that old Model T going down a dirt, muddy road. It can't get out of the rut. It's stuck in there. You have to do something completely different. And your parents, your congregations, they need to be trained in how to see this and spot this and help you. And that's what they're there for. And that cures depression. Depression is usually the result of you more concerned about yourself than your neighbor. People who are love their neighbor as a self, really love their neighbor, not just go through the motions. They're not depressed. They're at peace. When they see depression, they see it. And they say, well, where is that coming from? And they wonder and they look at it and it goes away. And they they give it to Jesus. And they go another way. They turn another way. And this is what Christ was doing. All these things, and these become like demons in you. These ruts where you're completely out of control. And you're in this rut. But you have to want to be set free. And in order to have that work successfully, you have to want to set others free. If you want to be healed, you want to see others healed. You have to care about your neighbor as much as you would have them care about you. This is the trick, to be free of all this type of bondage. And till we meet again, may peace on your house and may you seek to release your neighbor from bondage so that you may be free as well. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www dot his holy church dot net Thank you.